I am thrilled with today's guest. Francis Haugen is a American hero, as far as I'm concerned, uh, doing some heavy, heavy lifting on one of the big issues of our time. She's got, her book is out. It's a must read, The Power of How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook. Um, you've probably seen her in the news. Uh, she has brought to light a lot of the ills and uh, worst fears we had about what goes on in social media. And we're going to talk about it. Great to have you here. Thanks for being here, Francis. Thank you for inviting me. So I, I, I guess just to set it up, that I, I mean, there's one passage in the book that just says it all. I'm going to read it. The thing I saw at Facebook over and over again was there were conflicts of interest between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. And Facebook over and over again chose to optimize for its own interests, like making money. And I kind of that, I guess that sums it up. Talk to me, first of all, how did you end up to Facebook? I know you, you were at, at the precursor of a Hinge and Pinterest and, and Google. And just give me a little bit about the backstory of getting to Facebook. You know, it's funny when I was um, in like in college or when I was a kid, I always thought my parents, uh, so my parents are both academics. So like academics, you know, pick a problem in like usually like their 20s and they might do different variations on it, but they, they basically work on one thing for like 30 years. Right. And I remember when I was like 18 years old, I was like, oh, I could never be an academic. How could you work on like one thing for like 30 years? And, you know, when I came out as the whistleblower, I had to like think about my career and I was like, oh my God, I keep working on social software. Yeah. Like, like I've, I've like, <laughs> you're dra- you're drawn, to, really you're drawn to the darkness. I, and, 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 um, well, the, social software can have lightness and right. that's like part of the complexity sure, of it sure. all. Um, but, um, but I, so I, I, I did end up working at a series of social media companies. So I worked at Google plus when it launched, I worked at, um, on Pinterest, I worked on Yelp. I, I co-founded him. I was a very early uh, co-founder of Hinge back in the day. Um, and, uh, in 2019, like early 2019, late 2018, uh, a recruiter from Facebook reached out and was like, Hey, do you want to work at Facebook? And I, you know, I, I didn't particularly want to work at Facebook. Like I didn't intentionally not work there many, many times before. Um, and I, so I kind of flippantly like wrote back, like the only thing I would work on is misinformation. And they came back and they're like, oh, we actually have the job, a job for you. And, and um, they're like, we, we were going to have a, a new product manager, which is the role I did. They worked on civic misinformation. Yes. So this is information with like a social impact. And so um, back uh, when I was relearning to walk, like when I was sick in my uh, late 20s and early 30s, I had a, a friend, an assistant, um, who was like pivotal in my recovery. And the way I lost him was he he got sucked down the rabbit hole online um, after Bernie Sanders lost the primary. Um, and by the time the election came around, like he was he, he and I struggled to have conversations because, you know, the fact that I would give citations from the mainstream media, he would be like, how, how can how can you re- trust anything that's in the media? And it's like, well, how do we have a discussion about reality if like we're not willing to trust any sources? Um, and so uh, because I had had that experience, like this person was like instrumental to like me having a life again, um, who's smart college educated, funny, insightful, emotionally aware. And yet even he could get sucked down like into the dark corners of the internet. And so I took the job and that's how I ended up at Facebook. And what happened to that department? Uh, So civic integrity, I I think was really important for Facebook. So uh, back when I was in business school, so I'm I'm a little an anomaly because I worked both on algorithms and, and, you know, algorithmic products, like, um, like what makes your home feed. But I also have an MBA from Harvard. Okay. That makes you probably a party of one. Okay, go ahead. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know about a party of one, but maybe like a party of three. Yeah, maybe. You know, Um, but um, uh, the... um, uh, we're always a little bit less special than we think we are. So, you know, you, you always have to round the numbers up. Yes. But um, the uh, um, but uh, one of the things I, I took a class called change management, which which sounds like a like a bullshit MBA class. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the field of change management is like very established. Like it's it's incredibly hard. Think of how hard it is for individuals to change habits. Yeah. It's incredibly hard for groups of people to change the course they're on. And, and one of the key things you have to do, and, and Facebook did this for four years, you have to appoint a vanguard and say, hey, we need to change our path. These people are going in the right direction. We're going to give them resources. We're going to back them up. Like They're the future. This is the way we're going. And in the wake of 2016, Facebook founded this group called Civic Integrity. 
And civic integrity's job was to make sure that Facebook wasn't asleep at the wheel anymore when it came to things like elections. Um, and they built that organization over time. By the time, uh, by the time the 2020 election came around, it had 300 people in it. It went from like maybe five people to 300 people in four years. And right after the election, uh, they announced they were going to dissolve our team. Right, that we are so important, we need to be incorporated into other parts of the company. So important, we're going to dissolve um, it. Right? Okay. Right. Yeah, and and that was the moment what, what where led I was to like, that? Oh. what led to that? What led to what? What led to that decision? I think I think what happened, um, and that was kind of like the moment I lost faith in Facebook yeah. because it meant that they weren't willing they weren't willing to do the things that you need to do to change. Um, well, I think what led to that decision, I don't know this for sure. I n- I'm not an executive. I never sat in a C-suite meeting. Is you know, civic integrity kept uncovering problems. Like it had, it had one of the best research teams in the industry. It had um, people who were very passionate about the field who would have never worked at Facebook except to work in the space. And they kept accumulating documentation, some of which I was able to bring out for the public that showed the depth of the problems that Facebook had. And I think at some point they started saying, hey, like this is actually a liability. Like we're, we're not willing to actually fix these yeah, things. We don't, like we don't, don't want to, we don't want to, we don't want to, Dig into our shorts too much because we're afraid about what yeah, we're finding out. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So, what was your reaction when they disbanded that? Um, I I was a little floored. You know, it was it was one of these things where, um, you know, by that point, uh, I guess I guess had Ethiopia started yet. So by that point, there was definitely had been one major ethnic violence. Yeah, talk talk about the, where, the, like, the Ethiopia situation. Sure. So 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 the, the first big incident where. The UN, you know, inter- major international agencies said, hey, Facebook, your negligence led to the deaths of tens of thousands of people was in a country called Myanmar in Southeast Asia. So uh, the, the junta came to power. One day they said, hey, we don't want more any more Muslims in our country. Like it's mostly a Buddhist country. They set loose this flood of hate in a very structured way. Like they had literally sent uh, military officials to Russia to learn how to do structured information operations. And they flooded the country with information that led to neighbors killing neighbors, right? Like literally like the man, like the worst fears of like what misinformation can do. Yeah. And by the time, by the time 2020 came around, like I think Ethiopia had not fully lit on fire yet. Like I think that was 2021, but we knew it was coming. Like they had been tracking the violence and the tensions rising in Ethiopia and social media's role in it throughout 2020. And so for me, I was just floored because like you can have one genocide and it can be an accident, but like two, you start being like, is this a pattern? Like maybe you're just really unlucky, but like three is definitely a trend. Right. And, and so the fact that Facebook could, could get to the point where they had two and be like, oh, we're going to get rid of our safety systems or we're going to like defund our safety systems. That seemed um, grossly irresponsible. What was going on? During the election, within the walls of Facebook, I mean, obviously, oh, interesting. You know, just talk. Yeah. talk you're there uh, at this point. What What is? Because there's thousands of people working there. They see what's going on online. So, what's happening within the building? You know, I, I think the 2020 election is a great example of like what can be done when you work in a coordinated, intentional way over a long period of time. So, preparations for the 2020 election didn't begin in 2020; they began in 2019. Like I remember a few months after I joined, they held something called a, a, a red team. So, you know, in a like a war game, you have a red team and a, and a sure, blue team sure. and the blue team is the defender, red team attacks. Well, your listeners might not know, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they brought a bunch of people into this room, maybe 50 people and said, let's imagine every way we could mess up the election. Like, how could this go wrong? Like, how could our systems get compromised? And they, they made a list and they were worried enough about it that they did something called a lockdown. So this is like pre-COVID, so the words aren't tainted yet. Facebook had only done maybe five lockdowns in the history of the company prior to that point. You know, like a lockdown is something where they believe there is an existential level problem Mm -hmm. for the company. Like we don't have a mobile app or like we, our Android app is horrible and most people in the world use Android, you know, like those kinds of fire drills. So they had one of those fire drills for the 2020 election um, that was company-wide. And uh, and by the time the election rolled around, they had the ability to monitor emergent trends. They had identified maybe 30 ways in which 
various configurations on the platform were, 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 were likely more dangerous than would be acceptable in a high tension situation. And I'll give you an example of one. Uh, things like live video. So like on Facebook, you can you know, pull out your phone, you can go live and you can broadcast. And because Facebook wants to make sure that people see your broadcast while you're doing it, they give you a huge score multiplier. So, so every time you create some content, that content is competing against all the other content on Facebook and it gets a score, it gets a little ranking. When you do it live, they say, hey, this is what you would have earned. Here's an 850 times boost. Mm -hmm. And they basically said, hey, like going into the election, we know we have basically no safety systems on this. Like Christchurch had happened maybe a year before this mm -hmm. where there had been a mass killing in, a, in a, I think it was a synagogue, but it might have been a mosque. Um, and the only reason why Facebook took down this live stream of, of like people dying was because the police asked them to, right? It's not because Facebook detected it themselves. Um, so Facebook basically said, hey, here's weak spots. In the case of live video, let's turn that boost way, way down because we know we can't control it. And so for the election, those safety systems were on, but they turned them off after the election and then because they had dissolved our team, no one turned them back on for January 6th. Yeah, amazing. Talk, talk to me about the chain of events that led to you, and obviously you, when you're meeting up obviously with the Wall Street Journal with Jack Horowitz, uh, the chain of events that kind of led you to this. Here, here, are, the, hmm. here are the five things yeah. that kind of, might be five, might be three, might be seven. And obviously you outline them in your book. It said, no, 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 this is, this is I, 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 I just can't be silent anymore. Hmm. You know, it... I, I feel really humbled by the experience I had at Facebook because like I came into Facebook, you know, um, mildly critical of social software. Like, you know, I'd worked on a variety of social software platforms. I had some mild skepticism. I had never thought about the idea that Facebook is the Internet for billions of people. Mm -hmm. Like the reason I wrote this book, the reason why I'm still on the road is Facebook went into some of the most fragile places in the world and said, hey, Data here is $65, $165 a gigabyte. This is, you know, five, six, seven years right. ago. If you use our products, your data is free. If you use anything else on the open web, you're going to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And so countries that were coming online, countries like Myanmar, instead of forming their own websites, their own news sites, their own, you know, Craigslist, their own marketplaces, eBay, everything converged onto Facebook because Facebook was free. Mm -hmm. Everyone could get to Facebook. And, um, I, when I showed up, I was just floored because like I had never thought about the idea that people are becoming literate, becoming literate to use Facebook. Yeah. Like half of all the messages sent in Myanmar are, are voice clips because people struggle to write. Right. And, and so I come in and all of this gets dropped because you have to remember, I come into Facebook thinking I'm going to work on the U.S. 2020 election. Right, right. And I immediately find out, no, I'm working on misinformation everywhere that, where there is not fact-checking. So it's these corners of the world. So, so I think my, my journey to, fact to becoming a whistleblower really began in the first months I was there because I, I felt like I had been I felt like I had been asked to carry a secret where I, you know, potentially the future of, of millions and millions of people. Like, like Myanmar and yes. Ethiopia are, are, are just the first things. Yeah, yeah. Are microcosms. We should, we should expect not tens of thousands, but millions of people to die potentially over the next 20 years because these problems, like Facebook doesn't fund even basic safety systems in those places. And so that was the first step is like that six months. The next inflection point was uh, during the Iowa caucuses. So I, I grew up in Iowa. I really value the caucuses. I know that angers many people because the caucuses... <laughs> Not, 2020 not, wasn't a great year, right, right. right? Yeah, we all have our high points and low points, okay, you right, know. Right. But um, but for but for 2020, like Facebook's, you know, war room software, the thing that's supposed to like help guard elections, you know, it could only look at the whole nation. And like Iowa makes up like less than one percent of the United States. Like you're not going to see anything that's targeted at Iowa at that scale. And and the fact that like I. Uh, the people who worked on those systems didn't recognize that the early primaries influence who we get to vote for in the election. It decides who the candidates are. Yeah. And so that was like the, the point where I like started having conversations with friends who were lawyers being like, you know, like I, I wasn't ready to be a whistleblower yet, but I was starting to like 
just ask questions. Were you asking right? above at that beyond friends with lawyers within the firm? Would you be like, hey, wait a second, this, this who would you go to? So, so what I found, so I talked to my manager extensively in that first six months, and I talked to a number of other people, and it, and it became very apparent to me um, that inside of Facebook there is a culture where if you seem to question the idea that they are doing an unadulterated good, um, very quickly people get extremely skeptical, like. Uh, suspicious of you. Yeah. Um, like it was not a culture that was open to the idea of even discussing there might be problems. Um, and so I would say I I kept my head pretty down after the six, first six months where I was you know, working on my work, but not, um, it was clear that those conversations, there was not space for them. And what was the next inflection point? The next inflection point was, so COVID happens. So I end up living with my parents for about six months. You and, you and half the world, right? Okay, go ahead, right. <laughs> Actually, it's funny. The the man I went on to marry, you know, a couple of years later, you know, like last year, um, he um, he went and lived with his parents for the first six months of COVID too. That's like funny. we had the exact, we left San Francisco and went and lived with our parents, then moved to Puerto Rico, met each other. But um, the, uh, um, so I go and live with my, my parents. And I think that was a pivotal moment because one of the things I have learned since I came out is that most people who are whistleblowers, by the time they blow the whistle, they're usually like not in great shape, yeah. right? Like they've usually carried a secret potentially right. for years. They're at a point of, des- they, point of desperation and something happens. They're at a point of desperation, exactly. And and because I lived with my parents, I didn't have to deal with that discordance, right? Like like what, the reason why people become whistleblowers is because every day when they talk to the people who are relevant, they're hearing a completely different world. Right. Like like you you go to work and people tell you a story that doesn't make sense at all. And then you have to like hold these two worlds together. And for me, because I lived with my parents, I could sit down at dinner and be like, you know, it's kind of like coming home from, you know, high school. Am I crazy? Am I am I am I the one or is that, you know, Um, and my my mother. um, So she was an academic for decades. Um, She became a priest in her 50s. Oh, wow. Um, I always like to joke, like my, my grandmother became a lawyer in her fifties. My mother became a priest. <laughs> does, that, does that mean I need to become a shaman right, or something? Right, like, right. like what's, what's that arc of history? Right. Um, but, um, no, the, um, or like you'd say, we all have the potential to change and grow. Right. You know, there's a lot of different yes, interpretations yes, there, yes. but, um, the, uh, but no, so my mom's a priest. And so it meant that like when I was agonizing, you know, I had people to talk to. And, and I think one of the inflection points for me was my father one day was just like flabbergasted. Like, he's like, Francis, like you have a Harvard MBA and you're working on functionally national security issues. Because yeah. by that point I was working on counter espionage. Like we were literally watching state actors messing with each other, right? And he's like, if you were my lowest level tech, you know, so he, he ran a clinical lab, like mm-hmm. the place that does your blood work right. at a hospital. Mm-hmm. He's like, if you were my lowest level tech, you know, you joined two weeks ago, like you're fresh, fresh to the hospital. There would be a phone number in the elevator, in your break room, in the in, in the stall of your toilet saying, did you see something that endangers patient safety? Yeah. Call this number and we will take you seriously. That's a great analogy. He's like, Francis, yeah. he's like, Francis, the fact that you have a Harvard MBA and you have no idea who to call. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is absurd. Um, and I think the fact that that I could just have that reality check meant that by the time they dissolved civic integrity, like it, I didn't I didn't have I didn't have a journey to go on anymore because I'd already gone on that like emotional journey with my parents. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. So what happens next? So they dissolve civic integrity. And um, like many disillusioned employees, like the first thing I did was I opened LinkedIn because I don't use LinkedIn very often. And I just like started looking at LinkedIn, right? Because you're, you know, you're like, oh, I guess maybe I should get another job, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I looked at my messages and one of them was from Jeff. And I, 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 I reached out to him and I said, how do I know who you are? How, or how do I know you are who you say you are? Like that was literally my first question to him. And he's like, well, um, my signal number is in my Twitter bio. And I'm about to publish this story in the Wall Street Journal. Like later today, you'll see the story. This, that's how you know who I am, who I say I am. And lo and behold, the story popped up. And I was like, okay, cool. Why don't we go for a walk out in like the Oakland foothills? Mm-hmm. Like let's go like a park because then no phones, yeah, yeah. nothing. And um, I, I, I basically like interrogated him for for an hour. Like you know who who like are you serious about this? Like are like 
is this someone who can go the distance? And um, do you take me seriously? Like, I'm going to tell you a bunch of stuff and it's going to sound crazy, right? Um, do you ask me questions to try to like suss out, like, is this actually real? Um, and I, I came out of it not entirely sure that I, I, like, this was the moment, right? Like, I knew I needed to do something. I didn't know, I didn't know exactly what I, I was going to need to do. And I went to, a friend of mine died um, a day or two later, right? So he, he OD'd, like COVID, COVID trashed a lot of lives. And um, uh, he, he ended up being my pseudonym. So he was this person who, who meant a lot to me. And um, uh, he loved being the center of attention. Like he was a performer. He sang, he danced. Yeah, the irony he was like those, super- I want to point out to my audience, the irony of you, you always was such a shy person. The last thing you ever wanted was the spotlight. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's actually one of the things that's kind of like changed my life in the last yeah. few years is I've been forced, forced to learn to show up, yeah. like show up in my own life, which is like a thing that I think a lot of people would benefit from too. But um, yeah, so he loved being the center of attention and I needed um, a, like Jeff asked me like, so if, if you're going to work with me, like what, what do you want us to call you? Like, we're not going to use your name in the newsroom. And um, I had this new computer and I had to like, or I, I had to actually do the moment of like, I'm going to set up a clean computer, potentially do this project, you know, um, who am I going to be? And so I, I picked Sean's pseudonym. And um, I, so what's amazing about this is I had his name from like a week after he died all the way till when I came out the following year in October. And it turned out the day after I came out was his birthday. Wow. And so like on his birthday, I gave his name back to him. Talk about it, everybody hears the word algorithms, and you know that what a dirty, mm. dirty little monster the algorithm. Mm. Talk to the audience out there that's not familiar. Just somebody who is inside there from an inside baseball point of view. Here's what's wrong with the algorithms. Here's the here's here's the scary here's the scary part. Here's what they do, and boy, they shouldn't be doing it. Mm. So let's roll back in time to the wondrous world that was the mid '90s, right? So like the internet back in the day. Uh, was was almost like glorified email, right? Like with the main way that you hang out, hung out with people online was either you had chat, you had email, or you had things called bulletin boards. Yes. And you know, the reason you saw something in a bulletin board was because someone posted it and it was kind of like the next thing in the conversation. It was like, we're all having a single conversation together. You and I get to see the same things. So all of the laws that govern tech right now were written from that era. Right, a world where humans mediated what information we saw. So let's go forward in time. So 1996 is when we pass Section 230. Uh, a full uh, three years later, we get the first recommender system that's commercially available. So that's the thing where it was on Amazon and it said like, hey, if you buy this, you might want to buy this. That was the first commercially available recommender. Let's go forward in time. Now it's 2011. So it's 15 years after this. Facebook, for the first time, puts in a similar system where they say, based on all the things that you've read before, put likes on, put comments on, written yourself, based on all those things, we're going to look through all the possible content that you're allowed to see. Maybe it's like 50,000 posts. And we're going to show you 10 of them. And so now we have to figure out how we're going to order those 50,000 items such that we can pick out 10 to show you. And the system that Facebook chose for a long time was called time spent. They were like, as long as you're like the thing we're going to optimize for is can we keep you around for as long as possible? And in 2018, they made a shift. They saw that people over time were making less and less content. You know, it was, it was a very gradual fall off. Like people weren't posting about their breakfasts as much. They weren't Thank telling God. you about like. Thank God. Right. right. I don't know. Pictures of burritos. Maybe, maybe a little inspired. bit better. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, you know, if they're artistically done, yes. you know, it's all about the, right. it's all about the food yes, accessorizing. Yes, right. Yes. But um, the, uh, so in 2018, they're like, how, how are we going to get people to make more content? Because remember these systems are two sided marketplaces. There's producers, people who make the content and consumers. People, you, well, most of what we do on social media. And um, so they, they, they ran a bunch of experiments on us. And they figured out the only way to get us to produce more content 
was to give us more social rewards. That every time you get like a like or a comment, uh, you end up producing more content yeah. for Facebook. Yeah. Um, and the only problem with that, so they said, okay, we're going to give more distribution to content that gets more engagement because we get trained by what we see to produce things that are like that. Mm -hmm. And the only problem with this was that within six months of shifting from just trying to keep you there to trying to provoke you to act, right? They're now showing you more content that gets a reaction. Political parties across Europe on the right and the left said, hey, we know you changed the algorithm. It used to be we could share like a white paper on our agricultural policy and, and we get it. It's not riveting. Um, it's not the most exciting thing in the world, but we can look at the stats and people spent time with it. Now, if we share the exact same thing, it's crickets. Yeah. Like we're like literally verbatim, people were saying we're running content we know our own constituents don't like because it's what gets distributed. Or you had people like the CEO of BuzzFeed writing in and saying, we can see all the stats of where we're getting the most traffic from Facebook. And the content of ours that's gained the most distribution on Facebook is the stuff we're most ashamed yes, of. Yes, yes. You know, that plays on racial stereotypes. The emotional stuff, yeah, yeah. Emotional stuff. And so that's that's the um, that's like one of the core conflicts around all this stuff is that when we prioritize that content, when we pick out those 10 posts for you, based on can we get a reaction? They're going to be the end most heinous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the nasty stuff because that's just what gets yeah. the human reaction. So- Obviously, Facebook is aware of this. It, it's from Mark Zuckerberg on down. This is not a secret. Mm -hmm. And so, what's the mindset in the building? We we know, okay, we know the hate stuff. We know the anti-Semitic stuff. We know the the stuff that that's generating the most, you know, regenerations. So, is there is there a fire drill in the building? Is there what what happens? It's you know, it's so interesting. Like people have asked me a number of times, like you know, is Mark like willfully ignorant? Is he is he is he just ignoring it like what was the situation and i think part of the situation derives from the fact that mark himself controls 56 percent of all the voting shares at yeah. facebook yeah. and it actually goes up every quarter because facebook buys back its stock right like it's hypothetical that he could have 70 percent of yeah. the votes which is not, in a, a, few which years, is not right? a which is not a healthy situation yeah and i think what happens i think what happens is that at, by this point th the couple of tiers right underneath mark in the pyramid are all people who have a vested interest in in just keeping Mark happy? Yeah, right. If if you replace him as CEO, if he retires, you're, you're vulnerable. If we, free, yeah, if, yeah. We, if we free if we free Mark Zuckerberg, all those people are going to lose their. It's jobs. like a board. It's like and it's so, a friendly board. Yeah, yeah. And so I think he's basically insulated by all these these underlings where where there's just not space for negative news to flow upwards. For example, when Myanmar happened, there was one person in the community operations org. That spoke Burmese, but they were down at the bottom of the org. And because there isn't a culture of making sure negative information rises to the top, that that warning, like that person would be like, hey, bad shit is going down. It never got up to even the leadership of the community operations group. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. And Sa where's Sandberg in all this? Mm. So I'm I'm so intrigued about all this. So for context for your listeners, um, uh, a while back, like at least 2010, Sheryl um, uh, Sandberg got brought in from Google. So she used to run the organization that sold ads. She, uh, yeah, she's in charge Google. of ads. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, she's one of the two people in charge of ads. So there's like people who sell ads to like Pepsi and Coke, and there's people who sell ads to like the mom and pop, right. you know, bookstore down the street. She ran the second one. Yeah. Um, and she was like, I'm going to come in and make Facebook profitable. And I'm going to handle it. Mark, don't worry. You know what you like. You like building product, shipping product. You go do the technical thing. I'm going to make the business work. And she built up Facebook into the profitable company is today. You know, she built out the sales org. She helped them get all the ducks in a row. But very mysteriously, she left the company last year and she she left under circumstances um, like I think she was one of the the few voices on the inside that was like, hey, we have to we have to at least appear like we're behaving. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we have to at least go through the motions. And I don't know if she got pushed out because she was like, hey, like there is only one reasonable response here 
or like like look at the circumstances of how she left she left very suddenly mm-hmm. right like one day she like usually when you have someone who's that senior and has that much history the company does something to honor yeah. them on their way well, without down, question that's, right? that's always the tell i yeah. mean you know, versus yeah. somebody dis- yeah. disappears I mean, yeah. yeah yeah and and what they said they were like uh she, she did unacceptable things she she used company resources to help plan her wedding <laughs> i don't know if that's true or not right. but the thing that was the one where I was like, that is absurd. Is she, They said she used company resources to promote her book. And most people who say Sheryl Sandberg book, they're going to think lean in. Yes. But a couple of years ago, um, Sheryl's husband died. Yes. And she wrote a book about resiliency. Yes, about grief. And the thing that was absurd about this book was this book was a 300-page ad for the power of Facebook groups mm-hmm. to get you through your husband dying. Right. Right. The idea that her spending company resources on promoting this book, which was an ad for Facebook, was why she got fired. Something is going on. I don't I don't know what, but I, I find the whole Cheryl thing super, super interesting. So if if there's if you go on the theory that she was a squeaky, mm. squeaky wheel, then you have to put the the, the, for shade, the, the fault at the doorsteps of Zuckerberg. Well, because who, who else but, is going to be deciding it, that she's she's getting too too foot, footsie? Well, what if what if she what if she got subpoenaed or something? Like yeah. I like I said, like I I'm yeah, not a lawyer. I don't way. know anything. But like you know, I bet this is just for me looking at the documents. I think the documents ended with her, right? Like her name was the last thing on a lot of stuff. And I bet they went to her and they said, either you're responsible or Mark's responsible. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. All I know is she left the company really suddenly in a really suspicious way. So you you go in front of Congress. Have you Did you feel satisfied <laughs> after that? Did you, did you get, because obviously we've seen over the years yeah. the ignorance of so many of our legislators when it comes to media and social yeah. media. They're certainly getting a bit more uh, educated as we go on. What was your take after appearing before them? Hmm. Um, I was really, really proud of how hard the staffers worked. So like um, one of the things that really differentiates, differentiates, I think, a good hearing from a less good hearing is like, do the staffers have enough context that they can prepare the senators? Right. Um, And uh, if you contrast my hearing with, say, what happened with TikTok, like I wish I could have coached the staffers before the TikTok thing to be like, hey, here's interesting areas of inquiry, um, because you could really see the difference in when the staffers knew what what was interesting. Yeah, Yeah. because I thought the senators did a wonderful job for my hearing. Yeah. Yeah. So if right now. You're in charge. I put you in charge of Facebook. Okay, you are the czar of Facebook. You okay? You you you. Mark Zuckerberg says, "Here, Francis, it's all yours." You, and you're also you're not worried about shareholder value. Okay, I'm cre- this is a mythical world we're creating. So you have this. Well, remember, remember, Mark has all the votes. He doesn't have to care about shareholder value. He chooses. Well, to. that's what I'm saying. So you, what I'm saying is, you're not. You don't care whether the company's got a three quarter of a trillion market cap or two hundred million market cap. Yeah. And you go clean this thing up. What do you do? What do, what, what do we, what do we, what do you can, because there's so many, there's so much hand wringing. Sure. There's nothing we can do in this free speech and this two, yeah. two thirty and there's, there's yeah. all this stuff. So you're, you're walking into that universe and you know what you know. Mm-hmm. What, what do we do to clean this thing up? So um, I'm, I'm in the middle of founding a nonprofit right now. And we have two projects that would be perfect for this situation. One is called standard of care, which is basically like, can we articulate what problems exist and can we articulate what are the levers that would prevent or mitigate those problems. So for example, on a lot of kids' problems, a common lever is let's keep under 13-year-olds off these mm-hmm. platforms. Um, we have a sister project called Minimum Viable Queries, where we look at those problems and we look at those levers and we say, what data should Facebook be reporting, Meta be reporting about Instagram, about WhatsApp, about Facebook, that would allow the public to know how bad those harms are at any given moment and whether or not they're trying to pull the levers. Um, and the first thing I would do on day one is I would begin having Facebook publish a variety of very simple feeds of data that touch the harms and the levers. And I'll give you an example. Really, really critical harm for kids has a bunch of downstream consequences is staying up way too late on social media, right? The Surgeon General said one in three uh, teenagers is on their phones till midnight or later, which means probably like 10% are on till like two or three. Sure. Um, First, like an example of like the kind of data I would require them to publish is like how many kids are online at 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4 a.m. Because that immediately sets a level of accountability inside the company 
to drive that number down. And that's how you begin to unlock innovation is you come in and you say, hey, unless we are externally visible for the social cost. Remember, right now we're publicly visible for the profit and loss and the expenses that drive that profit. We don't have to report the social costs. If we start reporting the social costs, suddenly we have an internal incentive to drive those numbers down because we're going to get external pressure on them. Um, and so that's what I would do. You're the czar of misinformation. Okay. It's it, let's wind the clock back. Mm-hmm. It's COVID. And, oh, sure. and, and there is yeah, yeah. 50% of the, I get to do what I, whatever fi- I want. 50% yeah. of the world gets their news from Facebook. Okay. And now we have all this stuff on Facebook that's saying vaccines are dangerous and blah, 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 blah. What you now have all the levers. What, what could have been done? What, what can done? Because misinformation is still kind of the big, the big cloud over everything else. Totally. So it's really interesting. There's like a, there's a handful of things that you can do very fast that I don't think people would object to. So the first thing is, um, if you do something as simple as say, all the content on Facebook is in two pools. One pool is stuff you asked for. So that's pages you followed, people you, you friended, actually friended, groups you actually joined. And then there's content that you did not ask for. That's things like your friend put a comment on a post and now it's in your feed. Or someone invited you to a group and Facebook treated that like you had joined the group for 30 days and you wrote a comment saying that's misinformation. And Facebook was like, ooh, you interact with this content right. and made you a member. These are all true things today. If you just say, we're going to show you stuff you asked for before we show you stuff you didn't ask for, for free, you get less misinformation, less violence, and less nudity. Yeah. Um, then you can start doing things like say, hey, if a group has more than 50 people in it, you have to go to that group to look at the content. Right. Instead of saying we're going to stick, stick right, content right, from right. these right. mega groups into your feed. Um, when we look at misinformation for COVID specifically, you know, um, one of the documents I brought out said if you divide the United States into communities and these communities have between like 500,000 people and like 2 million people, it, they're basically like coherent groups of people. So if we had labels on them, they'd probably be like, oh, you're a middle aged white woman, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing who lives in the Midwest or lives in Puerto Rico. Um, but I imagine you divide up the United States into 600 of these communities. Um, 80%, 80% of the misinformation around COVID went to people making up 4% of those communities. And so one of the big ways that happened was the way Facebook is set up is if you have a post and a fight takes place in the comments, every time a new comment comes in, that post is treated like a new post in your feed. And so it meant that for, for people who joined, you know, joined a group or like I invited to a group, it meant that these posts would show up like someone would post, oh, my my child is immunocompromised. I'm thinking about actually vaccinating them because they're like more vulnerable. And a fire, you know, a firefight would happen in the comments. And now the thing that you see over and over again is this post just by saying, hey, if you're going to have a really big group, you have to go to the group to interact with it. We're not going to automatically insert it in your feed. Because the biases of the algorithm, the biases of the, of the product, it's it's dramatic. Right, you, the, how like little changes, changes like would this. change. Ninety percent of the problems would just be solved with that. I'll give you, I'll give you one more example. Just requiring someone to click on a link before they reshare it is like ten to fifteen percent less misinformation because people pause for a moment before they share it. This this week there was the news. Stanford did a big study, and this kind of blew me away. Instagram, I'm not. He didn't work on Instagram, but it's owned by Meta, of course. Where it was there, these child pornography rings out on Instagram. I mean, you you, you assume then the dark web that somebody's got to go to some 87 coded trillion thing. How is that? I, 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 I could go on this right now and there's stuff like that. How is it the world seeing that? How That blew me away. That was like, how does that possibly exist? I mean, on Instagram, not the deep web. Yeah. So this is a great example of how uh, Mark Zuckerberg's year of efficiency is not free. It's just free in terms of the metrics we require them to report today. So today we require them to report their profit, their loss, their expenses. A team that looks for people who are doing pedophilic content or who are soliciting it, because like a lot of a lot of the content that got that got shared on Instagram, I believe, is is um, is known as like kids self exploiting, mm-hmm. where like uh, they like solicited from underage girls, like right. show me X Y Z, or they or like they bought stuff from them, like mm-hmm. they actively commercialized yeah. it. Um, and the uh, you need to have people who are looking for that kind of behavior if you want it to not exist on the platform. And the thing that happened this year is, you know, Elon Musk bought Twitter. 
He fired 75% of the employees, including the vast majority of the safety teams, and no one punished him, right? Like he, he basically came and said, we're going to strip the social side of the ledger. We're going to just uh, accumulate a, a whole bunch of I'm debt. A free speech guy. Uh, yeah. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, it's not just I'm a free speech guy. There were a lot of things like what I just described. There were people going in there and figuring out like, should the algorithm behave this way? Well, I'm saying because, he's, he's, for example, he's hiding behind free speech. I'm not saying it's a free speech guy. Yeah, he's hiding. Yeah. Um, but because he, so Mark Zuckerberg has said that he was inspired by Elon Musk because like Elon Musk, you know, year of efficiency. And 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 it's, it's really, really interesting. So the core of our SEC complaint is Facebook under, like their stock price was overvalued. And remember, it fell by 75% mm-hmm, mm-hmm. after my disclosure started yes. coming out. Um, Facebook stock price was, was overvalued because they were spending less on s- safety than they would have to if they were telling the truth. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like the reporting the numbers yes, thing again. Right. You know, um, people used it who wouldn't have used it if they'd known the truth. Advertisers advertised who wouldn't have advertised if they had known the brand risk. Um, and uh, for a year... For a year after I came out, Facebook spent more on safety. Like they doubled the amount of money they spent on safety. They still had 30% plus profit margins, but they doubled the amount they spent on safety. Um, But then the stock price went down. And Mark has discovered that if he fires 20,000 people, no one asks, you know, should you? Right, yeah. Well, we, we know things like they fired the AI safety team. Like what consequences could that have? Right. Um, It's, and so, yeah, he's not being held accountable because he doesn't, because he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to report any of those social costs. So how do we not put all, and and this is, I'm going a little out of your, your sphere here because you're, you're not, Mm -hmm. you know, how do we not put all this on the, on the, on the doorstep of Zuckerberg? Uh, I mean, he does, he owns two thirds of the, I mean, he basically, he's worth a hundred billion dollars. Like that changes now is probably worth 60 billion, whatever it is. And he controls, he controls more than half of the voting shares. Yeah. How do you not put all the blame on him? Um, are you familiar with the free Britney movement? No. Do you know what free Britney is? No. Okay. So Britney Spears, um, when she, I don't know, this is like 2000. Oh, this is when her, her parents were conservators. Of her, so her, her father, her father, her father got made her guardian right. and rumors started coming out maybe like three years ago that like Brittany really didn't want to have to do 200 shows a year in Vegas. Mm-hmm. You know, she didn't want to have to like be basically a show pony. Mm-hmm. Like she wanted to go live a different life. Yeah. She wanted to go have a baby. She wanted to get married, sure, a bunch of stuff. Right. And, 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 and so this movement came and said, Hey, you have this person who, because they're doing a role is generating $200 million a year. There's a whole bunch of people around her who have an economic incentive in her continuing to do a thing she doesn't want. I think what's happening with Mark is like he became the CEO of Facebook when he was 19 years old. You know, Um, he never got to emotionally mature Mm -hmm. because he has always been the CEO. Remember, this is a man who used to have a business card that said, I'm the CEO. bitch," bitch." Right. Um, And uh, so he never got to emotionally mature. And then he had a really shocking, painful experience in 2016, which is as recently as April of 2016, they were literally throwing parades for him in Africa. Like he visited Africa and he got celebrated as like the savior of Africa for bringing the internet to Africa. And six months later, the 2016 election happens and suddenly everyone's like, you're destroying democracy. Mm-hmm. Like think about like what a shock that yeah. is for someone who has had their ego like puffed up for so long. I think he's in a situation where, you know, there's a bunch of people who make millions, if not tens of millions of dollars a year, keeping Mark doing what he's doing. Yeah. And he's going on public podcasts and saying things like, when I wake up in the morning and look at my email, it feels like I'm getting punched in the face. Like, if you're going to say that in public, like, what are you saying in private, yeah. right? Like, why are you still doing this? Yeah. And so, like, I, I always like to joke, like, hurt people hurt people. Like, until we free Mark Zuckerberg, until we free Mark Zuckerberg, until I see him go on to the greatness he can do. Yeah. He's a smart man. He has infinite money. Sure. Until he goes on to do that, I'm going to keep fighting to free Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, you always want human nature. You go, this guy's legacy. You, okay, you, you, by the way, whether you have 20 billion or 80 billion, it's not going to change things. But what will change, yeah. <laughs> what will change things is your yeah. legacy of being known totally. as a destroyer or a savior. And how, how you how you don't, from a human point of view and obviously he's been talked about he's on the spectrum and all these other things but it's like how do you not yeah. seize that but that's a question for for greater minds than ours yeah. Uh, yeah, how has really. your life changed since all this happened you know it's been so interesting like um so like i like i talk about in the book like you know i'm i 
I've had a lot of experiences in my life that really discouraged me from ever taking up space, right? Like I, I grew up in the Midwest. It's like we we have a lot of like Scandinavian culture of like you 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 don't think you're special. You know, I'm I'm physically very tall. I'm like five eleven, right. which is very tall for a woman. So it's like, you know, I I, I don't quite have the same hunch my father does because yes. he's like even taller. Right. But but like I spent a lot of my life like very contentedly, you know, sitting in the corner playing with beautiful data sets. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, 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 um, and one day after we get this whole social media thing squared away, I will get to go back to doing data sets by the sea. So like, let's get the shit together. Like we have, we have stuff to get done people. Good for you. Good for you. Um, and, and um, I know it doesn't motivate anyone. It's like, you know, please get this done so that I can go right. like, you know, yeah. be a data scientist by the ocean. But um, you know, when I came out, like I, I had to really learn how to kind of be present in my life, right? Like I had to, I had to learn to stand up for myself and, and it's been like a, a really transformative thing because like I've had to become comfortable with the idea that like sometimes you have to speak, right? Like, like it is important. It is important when you see things that you think are, are, are going to harm people. You, you have to stand up and that the way the world changes is because we change it. Right. And so um, I'm super lucky in that, like, I don't really get harassed online. You know, it's actually, I think, fascinating. If I had crossed Twitter, there are so many Elon Musk fanboys, something, you know, I would have gotten harassed. There are no Mark Zuckerberg fanboys. That's a great insight. That's a great insight. Hey, just one other quick question off, off topic, but it just it doesn't get talked about enough. AI, how to me, you you put AI on top of social media. Oh, yeah. it's to say it's the wild west is an understatement. It's, it's, it's Armageddon. I mean, so talk to me about what the, what the social media companies right now, obviously they're all in it, but how would if just fast forward your mind, 10 years, Facebook, AI on top of Facebook, what does that look like? So it's, it's interesting. So like, let's, let's talk about Facebook using AI and let's talk about other people using AI on Facebook because those are two two, different different problems. So, so, um, I'm talking about more, I'm talking about more of the latter, which is the scarier one, frankly. Yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. But I think actually both are really scary. And so I, I I think we should talk about both. Okay. So, um, uh, so, uh, just for, so people have context, what changed when we started getting large language models was the economics of doing an information operation on Facebook, an influence operation on Facebook changed dramatically. So it used to be if you wanted to go and influence a large number of people, you had to staff a large number of people. Mm-hmm. Like they had to go out there and run accounts that kind of looked like human beings. And and because it was difficult to generate text, you you could catch these accounts because of repetition. You know, they'd say very similar things. Like uh, the Chinese have a huge problem with this. Like they'd have accounts that all like use the same three words. Yeah. And you're like, I think you're all the same. I think you're all part of the same network. Now that we have large language models, you can have a huge spectrum of different people saying slightly different things, and it's much harder to see that they're coordinated. Yeah. The second reason why this is so dangerous is um, I most people don't think about it this way. Misinformation, like the misinformation you see, is kind of like viral variants, right? So like well, the way we get new strains of COVID is because, you know, every day COVID is mutating a little bit and occasionally a new version is like much more effective. Mm-hmm. And um, when it comes to misinformation, you're seeing only the most performant pieces of misinformation, right? Like people threw tons of different things against the wall and a few of them went viral. When you start having large language models, you can generate 10,000 examples that are all kind of different. They all kind of play on different things. Yeah. And then you can see which ones go the most viral. Yeah. Like that's super dangerous because it's basically finding the ways to hack our minds in yeah. a much more efficient way. So the thing, the thing that I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite concerned about from the Facebook using AI perspective is, you know, Facebook wants to integrate this into the metaverse. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but like there are already apps, like not as good as like the current large language models, but they were for the previous generation of technology where you could have a girlfriend the text with you all the time, though, was an AI. Yeah. And we are already seeing things like OnlyFans stars. So these are people who, you know, mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. racy images right. of themselves, um, where you can subscribe to have that that OnlyFans star as your virtual girlfriend. And she will talk to you for infinite numbers of hours. And the thing that I get worried about is it is really easy to laugh at virtual reality today. 
because like the headsets are heavy, they're hot, the batteries don't last a long time, the cords are awkward, that's, they're pixelated, that's change. whatever. Yeah. It's all going to get fixed. Yeah. Right. This is like phones getting lighter and more powerful. Right. Or we had supercomputers. I mean, it's just it's the totally. first stage of it. Yeah. Right. Like our, our phones are way more powerful than what took us to the moon. Yeah. Right. Um, we're about to live in a world. This is this is not far off. It's 10 years off where if you are kind of socially awkward teenager, instead of having real friends, you could have virtual friends who never, never really challenge you, who always like are flexible and you don't feel threatened around. And I really, really worry that, um, or, or let's take the flip side. You're going to have elderly people where we don't invest enough in things like elder outreach, uh, senior centers. We're going to have more and more elders that live alone. Um, instead of making sure that those people are really connected into our communities, and where we're going to put grandma in VR, yeah. right? And that's going to be a real conversation we need to have. Wow. Are you, Francis, you are, as I said, I started out this, you are a hero. It's been such a privilege talking to you. The monster bestseller, The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why. I blew the whistle on Facebook. We're glad you did. Can, can I end on a happy note? Yes. Can we end on a positive note? Please. Do we have time? Um, so the thing, you know, I, I have a lot of these conversations with people. Like we talk about really heavy topics. Like it's it's kind of a downer. You talk about in the book that there's this obviously a lot of positive stuff. Yeah, I mean, obviously. Um, but but the thing I, I want people to leave with is, you know, we're in the middle of a very interesting moment because we have invented a new communication technology. It doesn't happen very often. Um, but historically, every single time we have invented a new way for us to connect and communicate, it has been wildly disruptive. Right. Like like we talk about misinformation and get it, we get angry about it. We had full blown wars like with cannons and exploding ships and everything that were fueled by misinformation in newspapers. Yeah. And we came back and we said, okay, we're going to found journalism schools and journalistic ethics and journalistic regulatory bodies that are like outside the government. And we're going to have transparency laws about ownership of newspapers. And you, you, you can't own all the newspapers in a single town. We, we responded. Or like radio. Like we, you know, we can poo-poo radio and say like that's the thing that goes in old cars. Like radio was transformative because for the first time you could you could hear someone's voice like you could emotionally connect with someone mm -hmm. and the rise of dictators in world war ii was largely because of radio new tech but we responded we invested in public media public radio again more transparency more things that gave people choices we feel overwhelmed right now because it is our responsibility and our like our moment to shine and we're going to get through this it might get worse for a while but every single time before, when we've invented a new communication technology, we have figured it out. And we just have to keep doing the work, and we are going to figure this one out, too. So, thank you. I love that. Francis Hogan, you're an important voice. I don't want you to go by the sea and just do data. You belong, <laughs> you belong doing what you're doing right now. Keep doing it. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you.